This is the Urban Jellicle Podcast. Welcome to Urban Jellicle. My name is Mike Kelly, and I have the opportunity to speak with a dear friend for over 20 years, Jason Davison. He is a pastor at Grace Church Seattle and has worked with our network and in our community of churches in the Pacific Northwest Presbytery for a long time. Jason's doing some wonderful work and is a essential leader in our community and more broadly in the city of Seattle in significant ways. And we're going to talk to him today about his perspective on how churches, plants or established churches, can truly become servants in their local community. And I think we'll find that uh, his insights will make us more effective and more godly parts of our neighborhood. So welcome, Jason. Thank you, Mike. It's a it's an honor to be on board with you today. Good. Let's let's start. Uh, I know you very well, but why don't you uh, tell the story of your journey as a young man into faith and then into ministry and then a little bit about what you do? Right sure. Now. Sure. So my uh, my uh, humble beginnings. Uh, no, uh, I won't go all the way back, but I grew up in a Christian home. My mom uh, was very, very strong in the Lord and uh, raised myself and my brothers to really uh, read and study the scriptures from a young age. We weren't super churched as a family. My family came from Detroit, moved out to uh, San Diego, and then came up here to the Pacific Northwest. Um, So we did a lot of family devotional time. I'd say I probably came to faith um, at the age of four or five, but really didn't start really walking with the Lord until uh, my teenage years. Um, I had like a lot of teenagers raised in the church or in the faith, you might get to a point where you're like, man, is this really what I believe or is this what my parents believe? And I remember daring God in 1996, I'm going to read the whole Bible and you need to show yourself real to me. And, um, and he did after I went through the whole thing and I had not heard that story. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. And I just felt a calling from 96 to be either a professor at a Bible college or a pastor and, um, went to college, uh, was in reformed university fellowship and a couple other campus ministries, but I was really mentored by uh, my campus minister at RUF, uh, Ed, and um, that's when I first met you. You came and preached. I know it was in 99. Uh, you came and preached for Ed at RUF. And um, from there, the Lord really put in my heart, probably also because my then romantic interest was also interested <laughs> in education. Uh, now that romantic interest is now my wife of uh, almost 17 years. And she, cool. uh, she, she was tutoring in the central district and right. at a, at a high school there. And that turned me on to wanting to tutor as well. Um, so, uh, I ended up, uh, becoming a tutor a longtime tutor in the neighborhood and then a school teacher, uh, with Seattle public schools, went to covenant, uh, from 2005 to 2009 covenant theological seminary. That's when really got to know you a lot more. Um, You came out to St. Louis in 2005 and told us about the network. Um, And uh, I really had a heart for the Northwest, particularly the black multi-ethnic community in the central district. And I know you and I had talked about that, about me potentially coming back and um, serving uh, and or planting in that neighborhood. 
Um, and then I got to be one of your early interns. I don't know if I was part of the first cohort or not, but I was definitely. You were, yes. Oh, okay, yeah. So um, came out, got ordained in 2009 and had the honor and pleasure and, and uh, being on the session at Green Lake Prez for six years, six and a half years, and was a church planter in the Central District and learned a lot, bumps and bruises. Yeah. Uh, Family grew to family of five, uh, was a business owner, uh, community organizer, working with a lot of nonprofits. Um, church plant uh, painfully closed, but uh, got to work for Seattle's Union Gospel Mission for two and a half years. And now I'm at Grace. So I'm still in the Presbytery. Um, sure. What do you do at Grace? Well, initially at Grace, I was the church uh, church's youth family pastor. Um, but, uh, my role has shifted to, I still do pastoral care. I still preach, but my role has shifted to things that I was doing as a church planter and as a UGM guy, which is a lot of networking, a lot of serving in the city. So I oversee the serving the city uh, initiative in our congregation where we're trying to figure out, especially in light of COVID, you know, how can our church really incarnate the gospel and come alongside the city as we're going through quite a bit of uh, turmoil and sure. desolation? You know, the work that you did uh, with Jubilee in the Central District, as you just described it, you entered into that community and really did what we're going to talk about today in terms of learning the community and engaging what was really there, understanding its history. Uh, were those formal uh, categories of ideas for you or were you just sort of intuiting like what needs to happen or did you have this framework that we're going to discuss already sort of wrapped and, and understood then or were you just doing like most folks do, which is trying to make the church plant work? Yeah, a little, a little bit of all of that. You know, I did have, I did have a, a little uh, nascent uh, understanding of these things because I, I had a, a, a love and a history with the central district and a love for Seattle. And that helps when you love something, you, you, you're obviously able to see what are some redeeming qualities and be critical of some qualities that aren't very redeemable. But in terms of missiology, Covenant Seminary really helped a lot. I took a lot of missional classes, a lot of obviously Jerem Bars and uh, Schaefer Institute and all those things learning to be a co-belligerent in the city. That was a term, missiology, uh, contextualization. These were things that, you know, covenant helped sharpen um, my already kind of mi missional mindset. Um, and then my time at, at Green Lake, you know, you and the elders there really allowed me time to really, along with the network and um, the training we went through for church planning assessment, was all about listening to the community coming in and serving. And so that, that helped. Well, it's interesting to see how it's um, that seed has become a much more robust understanding. And it's really what you're doing for grace now. So it, if we were an elevator and I said, Hey, Jason, explain to me how you approach doing ministry in a neighborhood and what the church around the country and certainly around the city should know about that. Uh, this thing you mentioned, you used that phrase a minute ago. What is this thing and how would you encapsulate it? And then we'll go from there to try to dig a little deeper. 
Yeah, well, that's great. I, I probably would say things a lot different uh, over this 20-year experience, but I would say what I've been really saying to our congregation is having the church learn to be a guest rather than the default of being a host. Okay. Um, I think that in our church traditions, particularly in church planting, but also just as an established church, we tend to come from our sense of comfort in our own world. And that is the vantage point from which we enter into a community. But what, you know, I learned from Covenant, I learned from you all at the network and also just what I learned from other people, not even some of them Christians, it's just learning to listen and coming as a guest as opposed to always coming in as a host. That has that has some theological backing to it, but also has on the underbelly of that coming in solely as a host has some unintended consequences okay. that, that make Christians, well-meaning Christians, um, I guess, subject to worldly and uh, spiritual powers and principalities that oppose Christ. So that is, so uh, I want us to get to the theological component, but let's talk about the, uh, the underbelly, as you spoke, the unintended consequences of entering in as children of the king as if we're hosts and we're going to prescribe. Please unpack a little bit about what that looks like and what powers are maybe at force in that that we're not aware of. Yeah, well, I'll just go even just from my personal um, history as a, when I was church planting is I came in, obviously, I'm an African-American dude. You may not be able to tell from my nerdy voice over the podcast, but I'm an African-American dude, and I have, I'm pretty well studied. But when I came into, in 2009, to plant, I, I said, you know, I want to listen to the community. I want to come in. And I remember volunteering at an African-American community center that had a good amount of people who definitely were not Christians. They were five percenters. They were kind of a mix of um the nation of Islam with kind of a very African centric um, uh, vibe to them and, and really mysticism to them. I came into that, that uh, relationship as a host, even though I was serving and doing great things, but I came in thinking I've got to get them. I've got to get them assimilated into my, into the kingdom. I've got to get them converted. And so anything I saw in their view of African-based spirituality, even some of the trauma and hurt that they have felt in the institutions of our schools, our hospitals, um, our churches, that stuff I would acknowledge, but really wouldn't take it to heart. And so what it made, it made me turn back my back to some of the things of my own culture, um, seeing, um, seeing that I had, I had adopted a very Western viewpoint, even of history, of culture, without really even having any study of African history, uh, African intellectuals. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, because I kind of got lost in the story there. Oh, it does. It does answer question, and uh, it highlights the fact that someone coming from my uh, perspective, almost 60-year-old white guy, grew up in affluent Midwest, I'm going to be unaware of a lot of those things, uh, oh, maybe most of those things, at a much more substantial level than than you would. So the church comes in and it has the gospel, 
which of course is everything. Um, but if it comes in as if it's going to provide a context for people to consider that without acknowledging that it is one place, it's, it's one institution in the world as it is, maybe not as it will be, that's going to lead us to uh, lead us to some of the difficulties that you've mentioned and that we expand as, uh, you know, as certainly as a white church, we've done that through church planting, church planters love gentrification. And uh, we go to those communities. And as you've pointed out, it's like, we can't go there and act like there's nothing happening, good or bad in or outside the church when we show up. But so that's an extreme example of it. Uh, maybe help unpack. You mentioned some of the theological girding. I think here's the challenge we have. We we know the gospel. We know the hope of the gospel is the only hope of the city or the neighborhood. Yeah. And um, we're told to bring it to them. That's the Great Commission. Right. But there's a lot more to how to go about that. Our theology tells us more than those things that can help us become servants. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Well, I just, you know, I love the scriptures and I love, you know, there's parts uh, throughout the Old and New Testament of how the Lord sends his messengers and they come into a community and they not only come bringing the Lord's message of the kingdom, but they also are informed by and shaped by the community or the ecosystem that they're in. Uh, you know, when I, uh, I remember one time talking with a a, a wonderful brother in our presbytery. And I think you were at this meeting, but I, I can't recall, but this brother told me, Jason, you are a gifted preacher. All you got to do is just preach the gospel, just preach the gospel. And I, I took that to heart, man. Like we love that. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah. Okay. So that was around Ferguson. That was around the time of the, uh, uh of the whole beginning of the black lives matter movement. And so that happened and I was like, well, I just got to preach the gospel. But I had people in my congregation who were non-white going, aren't you going to talk about what's happening down the street? There's a protest happening. Or aren't you going to talk about what does this have to do with black men getting shot in the streets? What are they begging for? They're begging for the gospel that I'm talking about that has come down from the father, incarnated through Christ and given to us by his spirit, how does it interact with the community that it finds itself in? I love in this book, uh, Eat What is Set Before You by Scott Hagley. They talk about cultivating and gardening. He talks about a church is having a perduring presence of an enduring presence. And that when you garden, you have the seed, you have the beginning plant, you're planting it. But I can't, as the planter, just plant a, a seed in and have full control on how it grows. No, I'm also in conversation or in relationship with the soil. I'm also affected by the outer climate that it's in. And so when we look at Luke, Luke 10, or we look at Acts 10, God sends out his people and he says, okay, go two by two. And I want you to depend upon the kindness of strangers. Let welcome them into, I mean, not welcome. You are welcome into their home. You are the guests. Uh, you know, Acts chapter 10, Peter comes in and he has to defile himself ceremonially by simply stepping in to the house of a Gentile. Um, so we see the New Testament church wrestling with this, right? They want the Gentiles to hold fast to the gospel, but they say, okay, some of these other things, we're going to have to adapt a little bit. Sure. Um, just don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols, don't eat food with blood in it and hold 
to the gospel. And I think as church planters, we can unconsciously, at least in the West and in the, the American West, um, we can unconsciously come in with our Western package and think that everything that's not in that Western way of communicating the gospel is either primitive or ungodly. Sure. And, uh, and I have, I've had to personally wrestle with that when it comes to blackness or African based culture. And how do I reconcile that with the, our history of colonialism, imperialism and the gospel? Well, that's, um, that, that's a challenge that I can, I can comprehend, but my experience is, uh, you know, as a white man is different. You know, we, we tend to think of Europe and therefore my heritage. Well, we're in Ireland. My family's from Ireland, so they kept us way out there. But uh, as um, a little bit more historically, uh, philosophically, and culturally friendly to Christianity, so we can, un, you know, our problem is that we might uh, uncritically adopt that. And um, as opposed to really appreciating like the challenge you have and we have for other cultures is to appreciate the value, see what God's doing. You talk about sometimes, um, and I'm not sure if it's your language about holy seeing, not, not H O L Y seeing, but completely seeing. And is that connected to what you're saying here to have eyes to observe what's really going on? Yeah. To holy see a, a yeah. place. To, to, to see a place as much as we can in our limited view, but to see it in its totality and multiple dimensions. Like how do we, how, how can I come into a place and see what God is doing um, apart from what I'm, the Lord's put on my heart to do? So where, where are there other churches and church leaders that I, that I know that may have a different theological persuasion, but God has been using them? Uh, and doing wonderful kingdom things. Where are there leaders of goodwill and good faith in the city or even just in my local neighborhood? What do my small businesses provide? You know, where are there, the world does this all the time. The world is also responding to this. They say, well, we shouldn't come into communities, write grants and employ something from a nonprofit without looking at the assets that are in the city, uh, city or community. So it's looking at, the deficits in a community, but also the assets. Um, the Lord has sent me and there's no doubt I'm being sent, but also how do I participate with the life of a community? How do I participate with what God is already doing? Um, we talk about Abraham Kuyper and all the world is, you know, what is, what is a quote? You probably know better than me, but every square uh, inch is, uh, God says is mine or don't exactly. tell anybody, but I've only read it as a quote. I've not read it in the book. I'm guilty as charged too, but I, but I hung on to that. And that's only further developed some, some of my thinking over the years that, you know, God, if I truly believe in God's providence and his reign, that means that I don't just come as an extension of the church an extension of the Trinity. I also come as a participant in what he's already doing. And, you know, some of that language is from, you know, the last 40, 50 years and missional circles about, okay, well, we've seen what the, church as extension has done how do we recover what what gifts we have from the doctrine of trinity and the missio day how do we participate through the incarnation of christ uh, in our particular local uh, realities so we are um 
we're doing mission, but we're doing it um, as if perhaps God is already there working in his own ways through both his people and by his providence and common grace through folks that don't know him and maybe openly reject him. How do you, so if you're a church leader or a church member and you're in that community, how do you navigate being in um, a context that is doing some real good, but also is supporting some things that that are uh, unbiblical and, you know, ultimately destructive. Uh, we need to live in that space. And because that's just the city that I love, that's Seattle. You know, that's where we are. How would you uh, shepherd, coach, lead someone through understanding how to stand there and be present without just withdrawing? Yeah. That's a great question, a question I don't have all the time to answer, but I, do, I would say there's some categories that are helpful, you know, like thinking about our church. So Grace Church is in Capitol Hill, right? So the categories here are in, for, with. So we're in Capitol Hill. Uh, when we think about uh, service in the community, we often think we're, we're for Capitol Hill, when we're for the neighborhood. How can we do things for the health and the life and the witness of the gospel uh, in this city or in this neighborhood. What we sometimes fail to do is the with part. And that's where, again, we talk about entering into the ecosystem of a community, understanding the liturgy of a neighborhood. What are things that are praised? What are things that, what are the routines and patterns and traditions of a neighborhood? And in that with, that's when we come into the Acts 15 dilemma. <clears throat> we have healthy crises of, of conflict theological, theologically. So being with a community is, wow, when we're hit with COVID, we are hit just as much as the hospital is or the local school. We are in solidarity with the suffering. We are um, impacted. Our people are just as jobless as the mass of people on an unemployment. We mourn with uh, violence that's happening in our city or the protesting. But we also come into a theological crisis like Allah Acts 15 or Luke chapter 10 or Acts chapter 10. How do I keep my honor um, and vows and fidelity to Christ and yet also deal with some real struggles with how to apply that when I'm faced with a real relationship with the other? Yeah. I, I can't adopt everything that happens in the <clears throat> LGBTQIA community, but <clears throat> I am presented with a dilemma. You know, when the pulse shooting happened, I think that was 2017, the more progressive congregations on Capitol Hill were like, we need to jump right out here and say this was evil. We need to march. They were marching from St. Mark's up on, I don't know what neighborhood that is. I guess it's Capitol Hill, but Capitol Hill, yeah. um, they were marching. And so, but I'm in the more conservative end of the churches in Capitol Hill. And we're all like, okay, what do we do? We should, if we are with a community, we should be having these conversations. What is our posture? What are our, how do we conduct ethics in this situation? Do we join in and march in solidarity with those who are suffering from the pulse shooting? I was actually willing to go. And I think a number of church, churches were willing to go who are more conservative to just say, I may not be down with everything that's happening in this agenda, but because I'm not just in or for, but I'm also with a community. Good. Um, it's good. And it's controversial and provocative to a lot of, a lot of Christians. And it is complicated. Yeah. 
years ago, I was speaking to some one in the Midwest where I'm from, and they knew I ministered in Seattle and asked me with wide open eyes and a degree of, um, <clears throat> of awe, which was undeserved, how in the world I, I live with and our church deals with the, the subculture in Seattle, yeah. meaning the dominant culture in Seattle. But she saw it as a subculture. And I said, well, the church is a subculture. And that paradigm or that understanding of what we do in the city puts me in a lot of uh, awkward places where, where people passing by, it can appear that I'm affirming something that I'm not. Yeah. And that's really what you're, that's what you're talking about. We, you know, it's an evil thing when people are slaughtered like they were at Pulse. Yeah. We can say that and then just have a full stop there. Right. Right. But a lot of church, a lot of churches don't want us to get that close, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the dangers I, I, I was thinking back and reflecting on, on our time that we are, we're having right now and just preparing for it. One of the things that was really resonate with me is uh, the danger that's really behind all of this is a, is a disembodied spirituality. I love the wisdom from Mark Sayers in uh, Strange Days. Um, he has a number of books and he has a podcast, a pastor out of uh, Sydney, uh, Australia. And uh, he, he warns about how unintentionally the church can really live a disembodied spirituality uh, where we dwell in these, what he calls non-places, similar to a Starbucks coffee shop or a a freeway or an airport. These places are the same wherever you go. And um, what happens is, is that we actually have adopted that non-place in our church, um, church um, enclaves, where we surround ourselves with people very much like us that are ahistorical, that don't really have a tether to a place and to a history. And what happens is that, and this is exacerbated, this is the great danger of our pandemic, is that it exacerbates this disembodied spirituality because now I'm really in my own echo chamber. I'm really just talking to people that I agree with. I'm really just talking to people who earn the same amount of money or on my Facebook stream. And in this book, he talks about how a hyper-individualism, technology and globalization, that toxic it's, there's good things in that, but the, those three can form a toxic brew that, that divorces us from discipleship. That's one, um, when we're built for discipleship. Um, and it makes us privy to large corporations, um, and to large globalized entities that have access to us through our phones, um, where we listen more to podcasts than we do our pastors. Um, we are more apt to think about what someone likes on our page as opposed to our neighbor who lives next door to us. I'm saying all this to say is that, yes, as a person of color and coming from a community that doesn't have a lot of wealth, there is a lot of problems with the, and, uh, with the church mimicking colonialism when we invade urban cores. But really underneath that, honestly, is the very Gnosticism and proto-Gnosticism that the Gospels were concerned about in the epistles, that we are not living an incarnated life, a life built on discipleship, but a life 
that is really more influenced by the internet, by technology, by our hyper individualism. That's an extension of powers and principalities um, under, under the authority of Satan. So that's in, those are important dimensions to, to consider and, um, you know, provocative. It should change the way we engage and, and do neighborhood ministry. You, you and I are both familiar with how much work the church and everybody else has done on demographics and where you go. And you talked about doing a survey and understanding walking the streets, finding out what businesses are there, why are they there, what are they doing? But one of the things that we don't do very well, whether like our community, we just moved into a new building in the neighborhood away from ours or a church plant is to consider the history of the place both its economic history, its uh, broader social history, its church history. Why don't, if you could, please unpack a little bit about why that's important and what that might look like if you want to really understand and be a part of what's happening where you minister. Yeah, well, I think part of it is, you know, it's, again, participating with what the Lord is already doing. And I love the idea that when we think about Advent, which we're celebrating right now, or we think about the gospel, Jesus is in the Godhead. He's the opera uh, at intra, right? He's part of the Godhead. There's participation between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what do we see in John 17? He constantly wants to draw us into the fellowship of the Trinity. How is that done? It's through his shed blood. It's through him dying. It's through him becoming localized into a place dependent upon a community. So I'm not just studying the history of the central district 10, 15 years ago so that I can make a, a, a very culturally appropriate church. I'm doing it because it's a part of me. Um, what does Paul say? Filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings, doing that in a very, real way where I'm, I'm not affect, not just affecting the culture, I'm being affected by it. Luke chapter 10, I'm dependent upon the people who host me. I'm dependent. So what does that mean for a church plant or an established church? That means I'm studying because God is already there. I'm, I'm paying attention to the history, um, the, the highs and lows, the assets, the deficiencies of a community, what is worshiped, what's the liturgy of a neighborhood, Right. But I'm also making myself limiting myself as Christ did in order to be a, to be an effective witness. That means maybe I need to reorganize my budget so that I'm not doing everything solely through my church. Maybe I'm partnering with initiatives that are way over me. I can't possibly support all of this financially. So right now we're raising a lot of money under serving the city and we could do a lot um, with that money. But what we're really talking about is like, how can we actually partner with businesses or with um, local municipalities mm -hmm. or initiatives that are way beyond our pay grade and say, we're coming in as guests. There are some things we're going to host because we can be hosts. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're also coming in as guests and saying, Grace Church Seattle is dependent upon the greater Seattle business district and Capitol Hill, or we're dependent. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that the studying is important. I studied 15, 20 years ago. I didn't re still realize how much I was still carrying with me 
um, this idea that my reformed Presbyterianism was still a higher grade of church, even though I didn't know it, or I didn't realize how Westernized I was until I really came here and goes, I'm not even answering those questions. I'm not even answering the questions of my neighborhood. Um, I'm not realizing a, a lot of stuff because I've come in with my prepackaged gospel, like a guest preacher and I preach to my <laughs> congregation, but it's not really my congregation. I'm yes, just coming in. <laughs> I love that. The guest planter. Yeah. <laughs> right. The guest planter. So l- let me ask a question. Some of our listeners will be hearing these things and wondering about the inclination to compromise that's pretty well established in uh, Protestant and Presbyterian Christianity throughout the 20th century and before. So, you know, the slippery slope thing, slippery slope's not a biblical image, but the straight and narrow is, right? So I understand that concern, and I know you do too, that those things are real. Why don't you address, how would you speak with someone, imagine that that I'm that person, or they're, of course, listening, about the reality of that, but also uh, how to address it, and what are the guardrails, and what's at stake if we, if we make that too much of our concern? So I don't want to keep queuing up the question, but because I think you understand where it comes from. It would be helpful if you addressed it a little bit. Yeah. I want to enter into that. I I want to enter into that with some humility for those who are listening, that obviously there's no science to this. It really is dependent on the spirit who moves like the wind, you know, and we can't capture him. I would say that my categories that I heavily informed by some of the books I've mentioned already, the prepositions are in, uh, you know, for and with not by, okay. We're not supposed to be lovers of the world and we're not to be, Um, so shaped by the culture that we lose our distinctive um, calling and witness. I would just go back to and look at the dilemmas and crises that the church has endured in history, but particularly in the scriptures. You see Paul is accused. You see Peter's accused of heresy, right? Uh, But Paul goes back to a core in 1 Corinthians 15. He tells you what is the core of the gospel, the reality is, is that um, we need to hold on to that core, but also be willing to really be challenged by how much we attach things to that core. Is my fidelity to, um, you know, my reformed theology as much as I love it, is that um, Jesus Christ on the cross plus reformed or Western theology. Um, you know, uh, I was reading, uh, something from the Christian imagination about a guy by the name of Bishop Colenso. And he was a, um, he was a missionary in uh, the Zulu lands in the 19th, 20th century, I believe, or 19th century. And within three months of being amongst the Zulus, he, uh, he had translated the Bible. <laughs> this dude was a stud um, coming from England. It took me five months to translate the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep the story short, but basically 
um, he, at the initial time of his uh, time there amongst the Zulus, wanted to bring the African mind into the English church. And so a lot of his time is he understood the culture and he was, he was doing assimilation. And, uh, and he realized that what he was doing was, um, where it says, rather than contextualization, he was doing assimilation. And he was inculcating and mim mimicking the, the patterns and methods of the empire. But fast forward 20 plus years into his ministry at the Zulus, the church in England was, um, brought him up on charges and said that he, you know, he, he was heretical um, and that in dignifying African and Zulu thinkers, he had left the gospel. So I guess what I would say to those listening and to answer to your question is we definitely need to hold on to the core of the gospel. But we also re realize as reformed people how desperately um, wicked we are and we see things partly uh, in shades and shadows. So I have to call my community here in Capitol Hill to repent of their sins and their, their tinted glasses as much as I have to repent of my own tinted glasses. Exactly. Some, some people need to repent of their love of blackness at the expense of love of neighbor, just as much as I have to repent of my very comfortable, you know, Christian, you know, packaged, well, well-contained gospel, repent of my own righteousness in order to preach Christ's righteousness. Yeah. I, I wish I could answer that better. No, Mike. it's hard. No, I think those, uh, th those provide the framework for people to answer it themselves because that at the end of the day, it's not, it will certainly proof texts are essential. We, we want to get the Bible right, but it's got to work its way in. And we have to realize that we, <clears throat> We are enculturated ourselves. Everyone is that way. And that's actually a good thing. And Revelation 7, that's what seems to be celebrated, that we bring our redeemed culture to um, into the presence of God and the consummated kingdom. So there are layers to it. We have to be aware that if, if we're guarding ourselves to make sure we don't compromise too Strictly, or I would let's always do that strictly, but let's not do it in the wrong way. Strictly, we will uh, we'll either embed our own sin into our that we're blind to into the presentation of the gospel, but let's not make it sin. We also need to understand that it's not just sin; it's also our enculturated particulars. Yeah, the fact that they're good things, they're they're pleasing things until they become fused with and identified with ultimate things. Exactly. And so I want folks to understand that the choice of being neutral about culture is, it's a, it's impossible. Yeah. It's, it's not it's really, what, it's not what can be done. So yeah, it's a that's, that's very, I would say this just in a nutshell. I loved uh, growing up watching with my dad, um, the Lone Ranger, uh, Zorro. Uh, I loved those heroes that just came in they came in, they dropped in, they did their thing. You knew the routine. Yeah. Boom. They're, they come out. Who was that masked man? You know, that, that's how I, that's how I thought of ministry. <laughs> but then I remember as a kid watching for the first time, I think it was a fistful of dollars that messed me up because the man with no name, Clint Eastwood, he goes into the town and instead of coming in and he does his little thing and leaves, he gets the crap beat out of him. Exactly. He's, he's blood. He, he's get, he gets beat up really terribly. I think it's fistful of dollars. 
and it's only through that that bloody beating, right? That the, really the, yeah. the narrative pr- pr- moves on, and he saves the day eventually, right? There you go. I got to watch that again, but that's more like the ministry I've lived for thirty years than the masked man that came in. But yeah. uh, you but, know what we need to do? Those of you who don't know Jason, we should do a podcast where we talk about his comic book life <laughs> and all the superhero stuff he knows about. He's a uh, he's a beast in that in that uh, paradigm. So yeah. Um, let's land it here uh, and ask for the listener, whether a member of a church or a leader of a church, where do they start? Like, how do they learn? What do they do? Give some practical steps forward about understanding their community that they serve in and live in. Hopefully those are close or at least close ish. But what do you do? Where do you go? How do you find out? Yeah. Where do you go? What rooms do you go sit in the back and listen in? Yeah. Well, well, that's even harder with COVID. And that's what we're faced with currently. Yeah. Let's pretend COVID is not a thing because it won't be forever. <laughs> well, COVID or not, I think there are ways that obviously as churches, we need to think about our categories of how we, what's our posture to our community. So thinking about, okay, uh, we're in a neighborhood, our church is in a neighborhood, but we live we, we worship in Ballard, but we live in Lake City or we live in Renton and we commute when we're able to to get to church. I think one of the things we need to be aware of is just how disembodied our lives are and really think critically and lay that before the Lord. What are things that I do with a click on my phone or laptop that I actually could do differently if I just went and traveled somewhere? Hmm. My wife and I are just thinking about this with Advent I mean, with Christmas and gift giving, I had never used Amazon as, uh, up until recently. So now I'm just like, I love this. I, I don't have to leave. I could just, you know, but we were just last night going, there are businesses that are struggling that aren't Amazon that we can actually go to and find. How do we find those? How do we go on and, and study our neighborhoods anew to support small businesses, businesses of color that, that you could support rather than just clicking on their computer screen. So I would say first is just thinking and reflecting on how disembodied our lives are, um, how comfortable they are because of technology that keeps us from really being aware of our proximity. The second thing I would say is, again, study the history of your neighborhood, go for prayer walks. These are things we can do with COVID. We've been trying to encourage people of grace, walk your neighborhood, Pray over the elderly homes that are being hit so hard that those people are are cooped up just as much as you are even more. Walk your neighborhood. Pray over your neighborhood. Um, Pay attention to your, um, what are those uh, neighborhood watch meetings that are happening virtually. Attend those. Pay attention to what's happening in your city council. These are practical ways that we are we take time to hear the narratives and be bothered by the narratives that are not our narratives. A lot of the, a lot of, a lot of the cultural difference between you and I is not just generation generational or ethnic. We have you and I, Mike, different personalities, mm-hmm. but I love you because our narratives have intertwined and we've, we've learned each other over time. Mm-hmm. And I think having a faithful enduring presence, um, and a, and a willingness to be bothered by the narratives of others is a great start um, to, to all of this. And bothered by one another's narratives. 
and being present. That's good stuff, man. I'm so thankful for you, Jason. And this has been very helpful to me personally. I'm sure our listeners as well. Thanks for giving us time this morning. I'm so glad to be with you. All right. God bless. God bless. Evangelical is a ministry of the Northwest Church Planting Network in Seattle, Washington. If you would like to be notified of future podcasts, please visit nwcpnetwork.com and click Podcasts.